reading. Our first sermon reading comes from Joshua chapter 8. We'll read verses 30 through 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. An altar of uncut stone, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered under, onto it uh, burnt offerings to the Lord, and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on the opposite side of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front, in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterwards they read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. Our New Testament reading is from Romans. I'll read the first five verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. So uh, we are continuing our study of Joshua, and we have been uh, mostly focused on issues of identity. And part of the reason I chose identity as kind of the theme to hold this together is because it's become such an important topic in our national conversation. We have uh, been uh, spent, it seems like the last few years, uh, especially talking about uh, division, partisanship, tribalism. That's a word that you read all the time. Cancel culture. All of these things are about identity. Now, as the church, we hope to stand outside and transcend these issues. We hope to offer a better way, a more, uh, maybe like a, a, a more a Christian approach to how we should think of identity. Yet, at the same time, we too have to admit that we are a group, we have a distinct identity, and we must grapple with these issues as well. Now, we are a people that have a specific set of beliefs that mark us out as different, and yet we are also a people that are, are to, called to regard to everyone as a neighbor, to see um, uh, ourselves as uh, others as more important than ourselves and to acknowledge that the image of God exists in everyone. However, churches often split over issues of identity, politics, gender, doctrinal beliefs. Uh, uh, all these things are things that we have seen uh, churches split over recently. So how do we define us versus them? How do we maintain our integrity without abandoning our acceptance of others? And what we've seen so far is that Joshua is struggling with similar issues. The Israelites were also a people with a distinct history. They had an exclusive relationship with their God who had given them a set of rules to live by. And now what we have in Joshua is, uh, is the people encountering a foreign people who believe different than them. 
And it would seem easy to know uh, in this situation, particularly as they uh, invade this country uh, that is uh, inhabited by the Canaanites, it would be, seems like it would be easy to know who is us and who is them. Yet, what we find is that uh, even as unity is emphasized in chapter 1, those notions of unity are challenged almost at every turn, forcing the Israelites to reassess who is us and who is them, and to search for an answer as to what truly unites them. We've seen all sorts of ideas challenged. Uh, the land of Israel was clearly defined as east of the Jordan River. Uh, but already in the first chapter, we see land being granted to a certain set of tribes west of the Jordan River. So geography does not define Israel. Impassable barriers, boundaries like the Jordan River and the walls of Jericho have been obliterated, demonstrating that these boundaries and walls cannot define the people of God. Uh, Canaanite prostitutes have been shown to be virtuous and accepted into Israel, while well-pedigreed Israelites like Achan have been shown to be evil and have been removed from Israel. Lines have been blurred, and we have found more shades of gray than we have black and white. So last week, we looked at the story of the Israelites and how they were defeated at the city of Ai in an attack that was not divinely ordered. In addition, a man named Achan stole plunder from that city, which God specifically had forbidden the Israelites to do. And so after this incident, Israel again attacks Ai, but is more successful. And it's those events that lead to today's sermon text. So by removing the threat that was posed uh, to the Israelites by Jericho and Ai, the Israelites have established a foothold in the land of Canaan. They have also uh, survived their first major setback. Uh, Now with their unity and obedience restored and fresh from their victory at Ai, the Israelites build an altar. And the building of this altar and the ceremony that followed had been directed by Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy 27. So uh, you heard in our passage several times it said that they did this according to what Moses told them in the book of the law. And that was to take place uh, once the Israelites had established themselves in the land of Canaan. In this passage, we find words uh, like all and every repeated over and over again, highlighting the unity that Israel uh, now uh, experienced amongst themselves. But what is important here is to see what it is that unites Israel. So far, we have seen it's not geography, it's not boundaries, it's not ethnicity, it's not ancestry. And again, in this passage, we find that ritual becomes a major theme. Uh, Surprisingly so, because it seems like that uh, we find that a book that is purportedly about the conquest of territory spends little time detailing things uh, like uh, military battles. Instead, we have reports about the erection of stone memorials, rituals like the Passover and circumcision. We have the priests, the Ark of the Covenant. Those are, are what this chapter or what this book seems to be more about. Even the great battle of Jericho is conceived more in liturgical terms than military terms. And the book of Joshua does this. It highlights these rituals because the point Joshua is trying to make is that Israel's strength and unity is found in worship and specifically in the worship of Yahweh. 
Uh, the Israelites' other attempts to develop a marker of identity outside the worship of Yahweh have been found to be lacking. Israel is not defined by geography. Uh, as the first chapter when Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh uh, settle on the wrong side of Jordan, ethnicity has failed as the Canaanite Rahab has been incorporated into Israel while the Israelite Achan has been cut off from Israel. The only consistent feature that separates us from them is loyalty expressed in worship to Yahweh. Now, if we look specifically at our text today, we can develop a more complete idea about specifically what it is that unites the Israelites as a people of God. So let's look at what happens in these five verses. Uh, First, an altar is constructed and offerings are made to the Lord. Now, altars were a common part of the ritual of the ancient world. Uh, They were sacred spaces that bridged the divine and the human realm. Early in Genesis, altars were built as places uh, where uh, the offerer called upon the name of the Lord. That's a phrase that's used throughout Genesis, called upon the name of the Lord. And what that means is uh, that you identify with Yahweh. So here we have identification. Uh, This is in contrast to people like Cain who builds a city and names it after his son. Or the tower uh, builders at Babel who make a tower to make a name for themselves. Altars also mark territory as belonging to God. This is the reason that when Abraham journeys through Canaan, he builds a bunch of altars. Because what he's doing is he's expanding the presence of God into the world. Uh, In fact, uh, you know, fun Bible fact here, uh, there's two mountains mentioned here, right, in this uh, passage. There's Mount Ebal and there's Mount Gerizim. Okay, so they are actually both located near a city called Shechem. Uh, Shechem actually sits in the valley between these two mountains. Uh, And this is the area that was the first place that Abram came to. And he stopped after God called him to leave Haran and uh, move to Canaan. So the first thing that Abram does when he comes to Canaan is he ends up in this very area and he builds an altar at a place called the Oaks of Mamre. It's the first of several altars he builds throughout Canaan. Now, sacrifices were made at altars as a way to enter the presence of God. Uh, These were sacred holy spaces, and they could not be entered by people who were polluted by non-divine forces like death and sin. Therefore, what happened was the blood of the animals, which the Bible identifies as life, okay? So the the life is symbolically uh, pictured in the blood. Uh, Life, which is a, a characteristic of God, that's the main attribute of God. God is a God who is a creator God. He gives life. And using that life that was stored in the blood of the animals was a way that you met God. Uh, now, there's two types of offerings that were made here, right? There's, uh, there's the burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, these are two of the five different types of offerings that are prescribed in the opening of the book of Leviticus. Each offering has a different purpose. But contrary to what most of us were taught in Sunday school, uh, the sacrificial offerings were not about forgiveness of sin. 
that was not the purpose of these sacrifices. It wasn't about atoning for sin. People didn't make these sacrifices because they told a lie or you know didn't listen to what their mom or dad said or didn't clean the room. Uh, we really only have one example in Leviticus of an offering that was about atonement for sin, and that was the, the, the Yom Kippur sacrifice of the Day of Atonement when the sins of the people were put on the goat and it was expelled into the wilderness. So what are the sacrifices about then? Well, uh, more or less what a sacrifice was about was providing a means of approaching the presence of God. In fact, the name offering in Hebrew is korban, uh, korban, and the word korban means to draw near. So let's look at these offerings. The first offering in this passage is the burnt offering, or the olah. Uh, now, when performing the olah, what happened was the whole animal, in its entirety, was consumed by the fire and ascended into heaven. The Hebrew verb Allah means to rise or ascend. And the symbolism of the Olah offering is that the, the person, the offer is completely dedicating himself or herself to Yahweh. Uh, the second offering here is the Shalem or the peace offering. Uh, so when you perform the Shalem, part of the animal was burned on the offering, but only part. Uh, the other part of the actually was actually consumed by the offerer. So it was like having like a barbecue or something. Uh, the symbolism here is that the offerer has entered into an alliance with Yahweh that is symbolized by a shared meal. So part of the animal is consumed in the fire. It rises up to Yahweh. The other part is consumed by the offer. And the idea is that in, in this symbolic way, Yahweh and the offer are sharing the meal together. Now, this is important because in the ancient Near East, uh, covenant ceremonies, uh, uh, which were, were, were alliances that were formed, were uh, often ratified using a celebratory banquet between the two parties. Uh, so you would sign this agreement of allegiance, and then afterwards you would share a meal together. And the idea is that the two parties are at peace with one another uh, as a result of this covenant. So what we have is by, if you take these two offerings together, the picture here we have is this uh, community of the Israelites performing these sacrifices is a sign of full devotion as well as covenant alliance with Yahweh. Now, following the sacrifices, Joshua inscribes tablets covered in plaster with the words of the law of Moses. Now, it's unclear exactly what that means, if this is just the Ten Commandments or if it's the whole book of Deuteronomy or something. But either way, uh, the inscribed stones were meant to present a vision to the Israelites of the kind of society that they were supposed to represent as God's people. And this uh, society included the idea of love of God and love of neighbor. That's what the law boils down to. It was these ideas that God's people as God's representatives were meant to demonstrate and to live out in the world. Also present at the ceremony at the altar were the priests and the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, both have played a prominent role in the book of Joshua. And their importance is that they represent the presence of Yahweh God himself. So the Israelites were to understand that their God was not a distant divinity, 
but rather one that dwelt in their midst, experiencing their hardship, suffering, and pain, as well as their victories and joy. And then this happens, okay? In the presence of God, the Israelites divide into two different groups, uh, according to their tribes. One uh, climbed up on Mount Gerizim, and one on Mount Ebal. Now, like I said before, these two mountains uh, are actually really close to each other. They stand across a valley from one another. They're, uh, I actually looked it up, they're about 3,000 feet high, so quite a climb. Uh, but they're, they're strategically located in Israel. They lie halfway in between the northernmost city of Dan and the southernmost city of Beersheba. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, sometimes we talk about North Carolina is stretching from uh, Murphy to Mantio. While in the Old Testament, Israel is talked about as stretching from Dan to Beersheba. Uh, from the peak, you can see the Mediterranean uh, Sea to the west. And to the east, you can see the Transjordan Valley. So these two mountains are very strategically positioned. Actually, uh, kind of cool, uh, archaeologists have actually found remains of this altar on Mount Ebal. So you can actually like Google it and see a picture. There's a ramp just like it's described in Deuteronomy 27. Uh, on these uh, mountains, the people recite the blessings and the curses of the covenant. Uh, Deuteronomy 27 gives a detailed uh, description of these blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. Most of the uh, blessings center around things like fertility and fruitfulness. They promise abundance and flourishing. And uh, if you think back to it, that makes sense because that was the goal of the creation, beginning way back in Genesis. Why did God create everything? So that it would fill the earth to multiply. Uh, so that there would be abundance. So there would be fertility, fullness, life. Uh, those are the blessings of the covenant. Um, and then the curses are the result from offensive practices that would threaten that uh, fullness and fertility in life. Uh, for example, idolatry is condemned. We've been talking about how important idolatry is uh, to the ideas in Joshua because it enslaves people. It allows people to be exploited. It puts them in bondage. All these things that are seen as a threat to fertility and abundance. Also specifically cursed are things like uh, moving boundary stones, taking uh, advantage of the disabled, not upholding justice for the most vulnerable in society. These are the kind of curses that were being shouted. God is saying like, this is not the society that I want. Uh, they're designed, the curses are designed to uphold the community in neighborliness and shalom. So as we see, these rituals include sacrifice, they, improve the they include the presence of God. They include the law. But central to all of these, what unites all of these together is this idea of covenant. In fact, the sacrifices, the reading of the law, the written display of the law, and the pronouncement of the blessings and curses are all part of a covenant ratification ceremony that would have been a common practice in the ancient Near East. And this really shouldn't come as no surprise to us, especially if you listen to me a lot, because I always am talking about covenants. And the reason I'm always talking about them is they're super important to understand the Old Testament because they're basically like what held the entire ancient world together. Uh, they're a legal instrument uh, that forms an alliance between two parties, and they're everywhere in the ancient world. 
The key, though, to understand a covenant is it's more than a simple agreement. It's not just a contract. The pledge of loyalty that is uh, made in a covenant is upheld by divine sanction. Proper fulfillment of the terms of the covenant results in divine blessing. Violation of the covenant results in divine curses. And so covenants are very serious business because they don't take place in the human realm. Like we might go to a lawyer and draw up a contract. They are actually enforced by uh, whatever divinity the people worship themselves. So they are more part of the divine world than the legal world. Now, in Israel's case, the Israelites have pledged loyalty to their king, Yahweh. Yahweh, their God, will protect them and bless them. And Israel will demonstrate their loyalty by serving, creating, and enacting the kind of kingdom that reflects Yahweh's value. That's at the heart of the idea of this covenant that's being formed. The law is really just that, demonstrating principles that reflect the principles of Yahweh. For example, the disabled are to be cared for. Why? Because God cares for the disabled. Fairness is supposed to be practiced throughout the community. The family is uh, the central organizing unit. Justice should be uh, foremost for the vulnerable and not just for the powerful and wealthy. These are principles that come up over and over again in Deuteronomy. And such a society would promote fruitfulness, fertility, and abundance in which all members share in his blessing. Because this is the type of world that Yahweh created at the beginning of Genesis and is what he is trying to establish again through his chosen people. So, What this tells us is that the identity is formed not by ancestry or ethnicity or wealth or power or any other organizing principle that would have been common in the ancient Near East or whatever today, but it's through the covenant. Again, in verse 33 and 35, we see the word uh, unity, uh, this word all being used. All comes up uh, twice in those verses indicating unity. And this takes us back to the first chapter of the book where where that was a major theme. So the take-home message here is that unity is formed by covenant. It is loyalty to the covenant embodied by this relationship between God and God's people and enacted by ethical practices prescribed in the law that unites his people. Uh, It's loyalty to to the covenant that defines us versus them. Now, here's the crazy thing. The text knows that this is kind of a radical concept. It's a radical concept in the ancient world. And it wants to point out to us how radical it is because twice it it, it specifically mentions that the all in the covenant are who? Israelites and, okay, your translations may differ. Sojourners is the one that's in the ESV. Anybody got anything different like aliens, resident Yeah, Resident Aliens, right? Okay, it's a good show, by the way. Uh, But if you look at verse 33, it says, All Israel, sojourner as well as native-born. Remember that word, all, is super important. And what it's trying to say is that this all is not just about the Israelites, it's also the sojourners. Look at verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. And then who made up that assembly? Who is the us here? 
the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Pretty inclusive. All of those are us. So who were these sojourners, right? Well, for one, we've already talked about uh, in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab and her family. They're Canaanites, but they were saved and included into Israelites. But uh, you may not realize this, but uh, Exodus 12, if you go all the way back to Exodus 12, tells us that when the Israelites left Egypt, they left, uh, they took along with them a mixed multitude, is what it says. A mixed multitude went out of, uh, uh, of Egypt along with the Hebrews. Uh, so who was these mixed multitude? Not 100% sure. Could have been other uh, oppressed people besides Hebrews. Who knows? It could have been some of the uh, Egyptians that left also with the Hebrews. Uh, there are several places, several other groups that we know about in the Old Testament uh, that joined the Hebrews. For example, there's a group called the Kenites. Uh, they were a nomadic tribe that were related to the Midianites. And they make an appearance several times in the Old Testament or, and are considered Israelites. Uh, one of the, the stories that has been referred to throughout Joshua is the story about the 12 spies. Remember the 12 spies went out and only two of them gave a good report. One of them's name was Joshua. Who was the other spy that gave the good report? Anybody remember Bible trivia time? Joshua and Caleb. Caleb. Yeah, Caleb's actually not an Israelite. He belongs to a non-Hebrew group called the Kenizzites. So the point here is that the Israelites were not this homogenous group. Uh, but what Joshua wants us to know is that the basis for unity here is commitment to the covenant, not any of those other things. That's why the sojourners or resident aliens or however you want to translate it are included in this passage. Now, what I think is really interesting about this scene is that this commitment to covenant is expressed in these very these various rituals. You know, there's sacrifices, there's listening, there's shouting things. It is performative. It's visual. It's very visceral. I mean, this is this is a good passage, I think, for like coming back and being in person. Like, like we sort of like get this now. You know, maybe in a way we wouldn't have gotten this like three years ago. Like how important like this physical and bodied, you know, aspect of worship is. Uh, here, the entire ceremony is embodied. And I think this is where studying uh, the practices of an ancient people in the Old Testament can actually help us. Because like nothing can be more uh, foreign from our experience of like sacrificing animals. I mean, how many of us have like cut up an animal? I mean, I have, but you know, it's not something we really do very often. Um, so what do we learn from this? Well, I think that the, the thing that we can most get out of this passage is to give a clearer and better understanding of what we mean when we use the word faith. Now, faith is one of those concepts that is very key to understanding, you know, our religion, what Christianity is, the gospel, the word, we use this word all the time in church, right? We say we need to have faith. Faith is important. What God desires is faith. We even say we are saved by faith. Like faith is like the key fundamental thing. Faith is super important. If you're in church, right? Like you hear that word all the time. But here's the problem, I think. Um, 
The problem is, I don't know that I really understand what that word means, okay? It's one of those words I've heard all my life. But, I mean, like, maybe I could give somewhat of a definition from it, but it's a weird, nebulous word, right? And I suspect I'm not alone by this. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, when I hear the word faith, you know, and try to define it, I probably think of, like, lyrics to the George Michael song more than anything else. Um, so I think the faith is a word is, uh, is something that has become so abstracted to us that it's moved into like this intellectual realm and it's become almost meaningless. And that is why I think this story can help us because what we have here in this story is this like very concrete, this very embodied ritual of this covenant ratification ceremony. And I think that can be helpful to take a word like faith, which has become abstract, more concrete. Because here's the thing. At one time in the world of the New Testament, the word faith was not an abstract religious concept. It was, it was not just a theology word. It wasn't a word that people used in, in church. It had a very concrete definition. So, what does faith mean? And why is it necessary for understanding the gospel? Now, I think part of the problem in us understanding faith is that we've missed a key part of the gospel. We reduce the gospel story to just a story about personal salvation. Jesus died for my sins, and therefore I can go to heaven when I die. Now, there is absolute truth to the statement. So as I go on here, don't anybody think I'm not saying that's true. Jesus did die for our sins. Uh, and, you know... I might argue that our concept of heaven is like really platonic and that, you know, if you read the Bible, it's really about heaven and earth being joined and the world being set right rather than people escaping to heaven as disembodied souls. But, you know, whatever. Um, but I would argue that while forgiveness of sins is an important part of the gospel, it's only one part of the gospel. And honestly, I'm going to say right here, it's not actually the most important part. When we make forgiveness of sins the entire story of the gospel, then faith does become this abstract concept where we believe that Jesus died for our sins and thus we were able to go to heaven. What happens when we do that is that faith is reduced to mental assent to a few propositions, you know, something like the Romans road or, you know, any number of, uh, of, 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 of tracks that we have seen. Uh, faith is only a story about me. Faith is formulaic. Faith is purely transactional. But what is going on in this passage from Joshua is much, much more than those things. When we reduce faith to those terms, faith then becomes more about what we believe. It's a mental exercise more than anything else because we've relegated faith solely to the world of thought. Uh, faith then becomes more about uh, developing correct doctrines and then arguing with people who think differently. Morality is more about how we visibly show ourselves as different from non-believers by doing things like not swearing or listening to the right radio stations or dressing modestly or voting for a certain way or anything else for a real purpose. We no longer have to be involved in the real world with its real problems because it's all like a spiritual mental exercise. And if we do get involved with things, it's merely a pretense to try to get other people to assent to the same set of facts and doctrines as we do. So what's the alternative? Well, 
If instead we were to look at the Bible and read, for example, the book of Acts and Paul, we find that they take the gospel beyond forgiveness of sins and emphasize another point that we often neglect or that we find ancillary, but which for the apostles, I think, was the key piece of the gospel. And it's simply this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Maybe a better way to say that is Jesus is King. If you think back to the very first sermon after Jesus' resurrection uh, that's recorded in the Bible, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, that sermon ends in verse 36 with the declaration to all the house of Israel that God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. Now, what I want to submit is that if we understand that the gospel is the announcement that Jesus is king, then we develop a richer and fuller picture of faith. You see, what the Israelites were doing in this ceremony from our passage today was ratifying this covenant agreement between themselves and Yahweh. What that meant was that they were publicly declaring that Yahweh was king and no one else. As Yahweh's vassals, as their servants, as Yahweh's servants, they were committing themselves to serving Yahweh by living out the values of Yahweh's kingdoms as responsible and committed members of his kingdom. They were to serve him, not merely by acknowledging mentally that Yahweh had saved them from Egyptian slavery, but to devotion to Yahweh as their king. And they were to act as best they could to uphold and bring about Yahweh's vision for his rule throughout Yahweh's kingdom. So if we understand faith this way, the way the Israelites would have understood it, faith faith becomes more a declaration of allegiance. It's a pledge of loyalty rather than a mental information about uh, affirmation of certain facts about salvation. Faith then becomes embodied. It becomes an experience. It becomes uh, something physical, visceral, spiritual, and mental, like it was for these people in the ceremonies. Look how Paul puts it right at the beginning of his introduction to his great work on faith, the book of Romans. So if we look at our passage today, in Romans chapter 1, Paul introduces his letter to the church by explaining what the gospel is. First in verse 2, he says that it was promised beforehand. In other words, the gospel is a fulfillment of a commitment by God himself, the creator of the universe, to his people. It's part of a bigger story than one that's just about me or that's about you. Next, we are told that the gospel is a story about Jesus. So not only is it not a story about us, it's a story about Jesus and how he was incarnated, how he died, but then was resurrected and enthroned. And the result of that resurrection is that Jesus is now, look how Paul puts it, the son of God in power. What does that mean? That Jesus is Lord, that he's ruling, that he has become king. From Jesus' position 
of Son of God in power, Jesus works to accomplish what Paul calls here the goal of obedience of faith, the obedience of faith. That is the purpose of Jesus' death and resurrection. And if we understand faith as allegiance, that means we can understand the obedience of faith is enacted and embodied allegiance. The same kind of enacted and embodied allegiance that we find in our passage in Joshua. Just as the Exodus was important and acted as the basis for the covenant that Joshua and the Israelites ratify at Mount Ebal and Gerizim, Jesus' forgiveness of sin is also critical. Jesus freed us from a bondage much more sinister and deadly than the one of Egypt. However, it's only part of the story. And that is the story of Jesus becoming king, just as Exodus is only one part of the story of Israelites. An important and critical one, but only one part. Faith can mean so much more than simply about how we avoid hell. Faith can be active. It can be active and meaningful in this world and in the next. And most importantly, it can be recentered on Christ and allegiance to Christ. It can be about our allegiance and loyalty to the Lordship of Christ being lived and worked out in real and meaningful ways. The obedience of faith, what Paul calls the obedience of faith, lived out in, in word and deed. And there will be words that are a lot less transactional and deeds that are a lot less manipulative than we normally uh, do with our truncated version of what the gospel is. Faith can come in all kinds of different forms then. We can be creative in our faith. It can be worked out differently according to our different gifts and our different situations. Faith can be shared by those who tire of uh, theological debates. Faith can be about using our imaginations through things like the arts to give the world a new vision of what God's abundance and flourishing looks like. Faith can be about caring for people because we know God desires a world where people flourish. Faith can be about teaching people so they can know about the world God created. Faith can be about showing our families how they can use their own skills to be a part of God's kingdom. Faith can be about dedicating ourselves to others because we want a world, the world to be a better place because we know that Jesus wants the world to be a better place and that because Jesus has risen and is the world, the world will be a better place. And that's what a biblical, and that's what an active, and that's what a real and embodied faith looks like. And it's transformative. Just like the ceremony was transformed with this people, it's concrete and real. And that is what I think we need to get back to and what our identity can center around if we have the vision uh, to experience it.